We've been talking about baptism as a means of grace, and this is a good place to start. Don't worry. We're, we're to the Romans 6, 3 to 4. Everything before that on the PowerPoint we'd covered, which was Peter's message, 3,000 baptized. Matthew 28, where we're commanded to baptize believers. And 1 Corinthians 1, where people came to wrong conclusions about baptism. Now we're to this issue of being buried and raised and the implications to Christians about, the, about what it means to have been baptized. I was talking about this with Eric earlier in the week when our phone still worked. And we talked about this also on the radio, which I have a couple of shows I, I have to edit and put up. Um, Galatians, which we'll look at in a bit, is another case of this. Paul often reminded Christians that they'd been baptized and drew out implications and applications for them to remember what God did. And what we've been saying for months, or at least I have for years, frankly, is that we need means of grace so that we remember. And somebody that wants to be critical about that will say, well, how hard is it to remember? Well, I don't know how hard was it for Israel to remember that it was Yahweh and not that calf that took him out of Egypt. It's amazing the propensity to forget that exists. Okay? And if we think that we're any better, we'll just wait until I get to 1 Corinthians 10, which is what's going to happen here very soon. And so remembrance is very important and very necessary, and it's such that we should be reminded week by week by week and month by month. And that's... It's interesting to me that the Last Supper was the first Lord's Supper. Well, let's put it another way. Somebody asked me about this last week. The Last Supper was the last Passover that led to the first Lord's Supper. It was both things, the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is instituted by the Lord and it's not specified that it only happens annually. And so we need to be reminded even more than they did of what the Lord did for us. So we have here a reminder of burial and resurrection. And when we are baptized, we're buried. Baptism means to be immersed with him through baptism into death. So as Christ was raised from the dead, and so buried and raised, the water signifies death. It signifies burying the old man. And by faith, we're raised to newness of life. That's a great analogy. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 10 if I keep moving forward here with this lecture. I know when I was baptized, a lot of things come up because of church history. I acknowledge that. You know, when you become a Christian, somebody immediately, if you're an American, probably you're thinking, well, I was baptized as a Lutheran or baptized as a Catholic or baptized as a Presbyterian, whatever. And then it creates kind of a confusion. Was I baptized or not? And that was a big debate during the Reformation, rebaptism. And I appreciate the Assemblies of God pastor that was the pastor of the church where I was a new Christian. Because it came up for me. And he said, you need to be baptized. You're a new Christian. I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I was baptized as a Methodist. Okay, that's... Between you and the Lord, he said, but you should go by the Bible. And I said, okay, uh, I'll go by the Bible. I didn't, of course, didn't know the Bible. (laughs) And I said, where do I start reading? He said, why don't you start reading in Acts? I said, okay, I'll read Acts. And I'm reading along, and I didn't get it any further than Acts 2.38, and I went and got baptized. (laughs) But it was because of the Word of God, not because the pastor demanded it as terms of being acceptable as a Pentecostal or whatever that I was. And so therefore, I had a grounding for my faith. How do you solve that problem? Rebaptism of people baptized as infants. I'm not trying to solve that. It shouldn't exist. It should never have happened. And if we could transport ourselves back into the very first century at Pentecost, he, there was no issue, well, who here was baptized as an infant? 
run anybody. No, I mean, in, uh, Peter, when he commanded him to be baptized, well, I was too, there wasn't anybody he had to worry about that being the case. Okay, uh, there's the mic right behind you there, Peter. Make sure it's green, okay. Uh, Bob, the... Uh, Is this on? Yes, if it's green. Okay. Is the uh, aversion or the uh, the Jewish... By Jewish tradition, they were kind of somewhat afraid of the water or depths of the water. Does that have any tie into no, the baptism? No, they had various baptisms. But it wouldn't be like being baptized in a Lutheran or Catholic church. No, I meant in terms of uh, their association the with death. Yes, we'll see that in the Noah narrative. Yeah. Next week, by the way, if you, you want to be here next week, I, I don't know if I'll be that good, but I'm planning on it. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 25 is a controversial section of Scripture. And it has the gospel, but it also has the section where Jesus goes and preaches to the imprisoned spirits. People want to know what that means. Then it talks about Noah, and it says in, in like figure, baptism saves you. We'll talk about that. The water was the water of death, and if you're in the ark, you're in salvation. We're going to talk about that next week. And I'm going to give you the real answer. Or at least try. I'll give you evidence for whatever I say. But it, it turns out to be a beautiful and powerful section, but it's been confused by some ideas that have existed about its meaning. Now, we're talking about the, the water universally stands for death. So you're right, Peter. Water is the water of death. So the image in baptism was you go into the water as a repentant sinner and you die, in a sense, and you're signifying or illustrating that you have newness of life and that you're raised from the dead. Somebody used that. I think it's a valid use. I remember when I was a new Christian, I switched from being a junior at Iowa State University in chemical engineering to being a second-year student. At, I had about a year's worth of credit that would apply to the Bible college. And the Bible college has such a bunch of rules, which I would not be in favor of, but I wasn't the adult in the, war, in the room. And one of which is you had to shave off your sideburns. And I had sideburns. And I was about ready to get kicked out of Bible college before I had my first class, because I was going to rebel. And this fellow who was a converted hippie saw me and took me down to the prayer room and asked me if I'd been baptized. This is very biblical, because this is what Paul's doing. He's asking the Christians, have you been baptized? I said, yeah, really, just this last July I was baptized. He says, so why do you care if you have sideburns? I said, what's that got to do with being baptized? Well, you're dead. Your, your life is hid with Christ and God, Colossians. The old man is buried. Do you think that dead man in a coffin cares if he has sideburns? I said, well, I guess if you say it that way, no. So I shaved him off and joined the Bible college and didn't get kicked out. I probably, actually it was God's providence. I probably looked a lot better than I did before. <laughs> I looked better despite myself. Everybody was wanting to look like Elvis or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when he was about 40-some years old, I guess. Well, let's go on here and just see the theme here. Now, same thing in Colossians chapter 2. What you have here, I'm, I'm showing that to you, is Paul using baptism here, not as a replacement for circumcision. Eric and I just got done talking about that on the radio. That is just not true, that baptism is the no Christian version of circumcision and replaces it, and therefore you enter the covenant as an infant. That's Presbyterian theology. It's false. It's a false implication. It's falsely taught, and it's something people should repent of. I'm on a, I, I, I no longer care that something was sacred in church history. If it's false, I'm going to call it that. And this passage will not bear the burden of this Presbyterian 
interpretation of it. He's talking to Christians who are adults, who had been pagans in Asia Minor, who had been converted through Paul's ministry, and knew that they were under these hostile powers, the stoichia, which were mentioned in verse 8. And Paul's reminding them that they'd been circumcised in verse 11, but without hands, meaning circumcision of the heart. Okay, not the male child on the eighth day, but all of these believers had a circumcised heart. Then they were baptized. And here's what it says, having been buried, remember Romans? Burying a corpse, the old man, the old life, the way we were in baptism, which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So another truth about baptism is that we're reminded that we're following the Lord Jesus Christ and that though he was sinless, he was baptized in order to be a model for us who can't be sinless, but we can sure be baptized. And as we are, now I'm not, again, I'm not going to settle the issue about anybody. If you're satisfied with the only baptism having been infant baptism and you're willing to remember that, that's between you and God. It's never been my job to settle that. Uh, I'm telling you what the New Testament taught and what we practice, okay? And why we would never, ever baptize an infant here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. To do so would be and to be rebellious against God. And I got enough problems without having rebellion against God sitting on my head. Okay? So, having been buried and raised. See, people need to think about that, and it gives us motivation for godly living. That's what the what it does. Why live like the old self when he was buried and dead? Live like the new self that's renewed. Now, let me go to the next slide. Yeah, Galatians. Eric and I just spent about 15 minutes on the radio talking about this verse this last week in our recording of it. It's not up on the Internet yet. It won't be very quickly if I don't get a modem. I couldn't put it up if I wanted to. Now... What's this all about? All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, this goes back to the word bapto, or baptizo, from the old Greek. And the mystery religions, like there are a lot of them, Mithras, Isis, and Osiris, the Terabulum. I mean, they had some weird practices. I have books that detail those, but they did have baptism, and they had robes that would be associated with being a convert into the mystery religion, the false religion. And one of the, within the range of meaning, one of the meanings of the term for baptize is to dip a robe in to dye. So you have this robe, you immerse it in dye, bring it back out, and it's a new color. It's the same robe, But in other ways, it's not the same. Well, in these mystery religions, they had baptismal rites, which the neophyte had to go through a process of purification specified by the false religion or the false god. And then being baptized would come out of the water as new. And then they were a devotee of the God in question. And so baptism was known in Asia Minor where Paul wrote this. And so what's distinctively Christian is they're being baptized into Christ. And then when it says you clothe yourself with Christ, his terminology drawn from Asia Minor and these other in Greece and so on, of these religions. And they just as they came out, they were given their new garb, and now they're devotee of this false god or goddess. We as Christians are identified with Christ. So clothing, you know, 
laying aside garments. Have you seen that in the New Testament, like in Colossians 3? So you lay aside these wicked, sinful garments, the old life buried, and you clothe yourself with Christ, and you're a new creature. doesn't mean we're sinless, but we've got a point of remembrance. Just like Israel was in Egypt as slaves in a wicked, sinful system being abused by the Egyptians, God brought them through the water with a pillar of fire and, a, and, and through the water that closed behind them, and the pillar was there. And they're new now. They're the Lord's sons. It says in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son. And they can't go back. And I've said this often when preparing people to be baptized. One of the reasons the water closed in on the Egyptian army and drowned them, not only to judge Egypt, but to keep the Israelites from going back. How are you going to go back? Because there's no more dry path through the water. This is once for all. Baptism is once for all. The early church as I've said before, went into air about this almost immediately. And there were cases where people thought they would go to hell if they sinned after they were baptized. And so there were people waiting, hopefully they can time the deathbed just right, and then get baptized before they die. But if they made an unexpected turnaround and got healthy, they'd probably sit again and they'd be sunk. And it's just false doctrine. If you think you're going to get an enlightened view of baptism from church history, you won't. It's almost safer to ignore it in regard to this and just go to the scripture. You come to a wholly different or totally different conclusion. It isn't that baptism means if you, that you're sinless and if you ever sin afterwards, you're sunk. It gives you a point of remembrance. That word is, is exceedingly important. Remembrance. Remember, that's what Paul's doing here. You were baptized. Now, what are the implications? Here, the implication is you've clothed yourself with Christ. Just in a, in a similar way that the pagan devotee clothed themselves with Mithras or some other false deity, the Christian is clothed with Christ. So we're not like the pagans around us. That's an implication of baptism as a means of grace. Now, here's the passage, and we've got plenty of time. I want to really get into this particular passage. You want to turn to it. I can only get so much on a slide, but it's 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians is very important in regard to the baptism and the Lord's Supper because both were being abused in Corinth. Both baptism... 1 Corinthians 1 and the Lord's Supper, as we're seeing here, were abused by the Corinthians. In what way? Well, they had weird ideas. Who baptized you was more important than the fact that the old man was buried and then you were raised in newness of life. They're more concerned about who, oh, Apollos baptized me. That makes me a good Christian because they were so sectarian. And in regard to the Lord's Supper, they had a sectarian Lord's Supper. The rich people, the important people, had their own Lord's Supper. The poor people and the ones with no status had a lesser one and were excluded, essentially, from full participation in the body. That's what's rebuked in 1 Corinthians 11. But before that, back here in 1 Corinthians 10 you have an illustration from the past from Israel about the fact that if you trust so-called sacraments, that's not adequate. You're in danger of trusting sacraments rather than the finished work of Christ. Now, isn't that apropos for much of church history? All right, let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized 
into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with, and I got this emphasized, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So the idea is that God had brought them through the Red Sea, all of them, and thus they were baptized in water because they went through the sea, came out on the other side, and the sea closed behind them, signifying death. The entire Egyptian army died behind them. And the spirit, which would be the cloud, which led them out and then became a guard, a rear guard for them uh, to the Egyptians in this whole narrative. Notice it says they're baptized into Moses here, making a play on the idea that now we're baptized into Christ. And Christ is greater than Moses. Uh, In preparation for this, I read Gordon Fee's outstanding commentary on 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. And actually, if you want one commentary to own on 1 Corinthians, get Gordon Fee. It's by far and away the best. So, baptized in spirit and water. And the warning is that if they trust simply the experience, they are in danger of failing to obtain the eschatological prize. What does that mean? Well, just before this, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said that he disciplined himself lest after preaching to others he become apostate. He might lose the eschatological prize. Now it says that this is a warning to all Christians and that they might lose the eschatological prize. So here they have their own form of baptism in the Lord's Supper. They misunderstand the implications of it, and they are wanting to continue to participate in their pagan feasts as Christians. They wanted to go down to the meal dedicated to the pagan deity. They wanted to go down to the pagan temple. They wanted to participate in pagan idolatry, perhaps saying, we have been baptized and we have the Lord's Supper, so we're safe. In other words, none of this will really rub off on us. So we are going to go down to the local temple of darkness and we'll be okay. Paul is saying, that's exactly what your fathers, now here is corporate solidarity, in this case even with Gentile Christians, going back to look at Moses also as their father. Our fathers, they did the same thing. They went right on through the sea and the cloud, and they had water, spiritual water, like water of baptism. They had manna. They had a spiritual meal that they partake in together. And they died in unbelief out in the wilderness. They had a 40-year funeral, burying corpses for 40 years. Thankfully, sand is easy to dig in. Put the body in the ground, and they died, and they died. And they were dying. How? Um, Peter, William, would you look up while we're here, Hebrews three seventeen through 19, and I'll have Brian give you the mic. Hebrews three seventeen through 19. You may all want to turn to this, because Hebrews also draws from the wilderness wandering experience to issue a similar warning. Now, in their case, it's about Sabbath. It's about trusting in Sabbath. In Corinth, they're trusting in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, make sure the green light's on, and then read Hebrews three seventeen to 19. Hebrews three seventeen through 19. 
Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fill in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Yeah, they failed to enter because of unbelief. That's Hebrews 3.19. Do you get the implications of that? You can have everything the church has to offer, even a good church. And you can be baptized. And you can have the Lord's Supper. And you can have the Word of God taught to you. And you can have prayer. Yet die in unbelief. The issue isn't the presence of means of grace simply that they're there. The issue is faith. And I've told you before stories about this. When I first got interested in writing theology and I wanted an audience to read my article and then give it critical review. So in the 80s, we started a pastor's meeting with mostly charismatic pastors, and then I would write an article, or maybe another pastor would, and then we'd debate it in this meeting. And I told you this story before, but some were Lutheran, uh, at least in their past, and there was a lot of people, because they had a historical liturgical church, who believed that means of grace were just going to damn you to hell. And so they wanted nothing to do with it. What they wanted was an experience. They figured if you have means of grace, you'll probably go to hell, but if you speak in tongues, you're okay. And they were concluding that from their own experience. But if you examine this more carefully, you'll realize, as it was the case for me as a Methodist before I was converted, the real problem wasn't that the truth was found in somebody's book of common prayer. It is. The real problem is what? Unbelief. And so when they would say to me, well, if you just teach the word, you have nothing but death, dead orthodoxy. Pietism is always a reaction to dead orthodoxy. Orthodoxy isn't dead. Unbelief is. The truth will not kill you. The truth rebelled against and not believed, then we got a problem. Okay? So I always ask them, okay, so you claim Lutheran dogma killed you and speaking in tongues made you alive. Did you believe that Lutheran dogma? Well, no, I didn't believe it. Okay? In as much as the dogma was biblical, some is, some isn't. And inasmuch as you refused to believe it, what killed you wasn't the lack of speaking in tongues, it was the lack of faith. Because if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you believe in the virgin birth, and you believe in the preexistence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as God and with God, and you believe that God created the entire world out of nothing, and that Messiah, according to Hebrews 1, 2, and John 1, 3, also is the creator, and you believe in the sonship of Christ, as it says in Hebrews, and you believe in his sinless life and his death, burial, resurrection, and bodily ascension to heaven, and that he's coming again to judge the quick and the dead, and you believe in repentance and faith, none of that is going to kill you. It's the truth. Kierkegaard and company rebelled against it because they call it dead orthodoxy. We need a blind leap of faith. It doesn't matter what we believe. Everything's an experience. Schaefer rebuked that idea. I'm telling you that what killed the wilderness wanderers, according to Hebrews 3.19, was unbelief. Uh, Take the mic, please, over to Jim Palmer. When the Israelites left Egypt in the Exodus, there were 600,000 men. Only two of them made it to the promised land. Yeah, two. Joshua and Caleb. Now, there's a remnant. (laughs) Okay. Whole generations. No, no, no. 
Well, what, what caused them to not want to go into the promised land? Unbelief. Now, what does it say, though? Now, why, why are we teaching means of grace if we're not Lutheran? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Hearing the word of God is the means ordained by God in which faith arises in hearts and we believe what God said. And for those who believe and are baptized, we can look back and remember that we were buried with Christ and raised in newness of life. And maybe we're not doing so well or maybe our lives are seriously in need of reformation personally. Looking back at baptism or remembering the Lord at the Lord's Supper is a means God uses to bring us to repentance and sanctification. If Christ did all of this for me and allowed me to participate, even though I'm an unworthy sinner with no status, like the woman weeping on Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7, then maybe he'll change my life too. Maybe there's hope. Maybe God has a plan, and I just haven't lived up to it, but may God give me grace. Do you ever feel that way? Is there hope for me? Uh, Let me quote some Gordon Fee. The nature of this argument strongly suggests, says Fee, that those who think they stand, verse 12, we didn't get that far, do so on the basis of a somewhat magical view of the sacraments. Otherwise, one could scarcely make sense of the present paragraph, this one. Therefore, their argument with Paul most likely included some reference to their own security through the sacraments. I'll go to church, I'll have the Lord's Supper, I'll remember that I was baptized, and when I get done with that, I'll go another night and I'll go to the pagan love feast. And I'll eat and drink with with the idolaters and feel good about it. No. Okay? Uh, Let me quote Fee some more. Therefore, their argument with Paul most likely included some reference to their own security, as I said, which so identified them as Christians that their attendance at the idol temples was immaterial since those gods did not exist. I'm going to go down to the... uh, Isis and Osiris temple, the mother-son cult. Well, why do that? That's pagan, it's evil. Well, they don't exist anyhow. Why to go to the temple of what doesn't exist when you have a God who created the heavens and the earth and all that there is therein? We've got the living God, the true God. Why is he called the living God? Because he's not one of the idols. Why say the golden calf took you out of Egypt when you know Yahweh did it? Well, we like the golden calf. He's more tangible. He's, you can see him. He's right there. And then he's not going to throw us in hell. We'll just melt him down if he threatens to. <laughs> Turn him back to earrings and <laughs> whatever he was. Actually, Moses made him grind him up and drink him. I wonder if gold is good for you. Then the reminder is exactly what Hebrews is talking about. The majority fell under God's judgment. So they have their baptism and their Lord's Supper, but they also have their idolatry. And we as evangelical Christians, if I can use that word in the biblical sense, ones who believe the gospel, I think the same warning has to apply to us. Isn't it possible for that to happen to us too? We're not just here to see all those other people, the other, all these denominations, We just need to take this to heart. It's a glorious thing that we are baptized. And we remember what God did for us. And it's a glorious privilege to participate in the Lord's Supper. To remember what God did for us. And to look forward in faith to the return of Christ. But we shouldn't just think none of it applies to us. According to Feed, Christ is the new Moses. He says all were under the cloud. Notice that all. All were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. This was universally true. They were baptized into Moses, now we're baptized into Christ. So as is claimed elsewhere in the New Testament, Christ is the new 
and greater Moses. He's the lawgiver under the new covenant, and he appointed apostles who give laws as well that are valid and binding. 1 Corinthians is so glorious. It's too bad it's misunderstood because of missing Paul's irony. And a lot of false conclusions have been made from 1 Corinthians. But if you understand the irony, then you can put everything in context. Luann, could you bring it right over here? Bring the mic to Luann. Um, just read from that commentary and, and stress the word all. And one of the things that Lutherans will do is they'll say um, that the all can mean all in on up. For instance, Cornelius's household, all who heard. Yeah. Can you comment on that so reference? Yes, um, I've heard that argument. And it's sort of, some try to use this from Acts, but in every case but one in Acts, it mentions that the baptized households believed. First of all, I would say this. I don't know exactly how you call to remembrance something you can't remember. Okay. And number two, I don't know why God singles out the infants that by in providence were born into Christian families. And look at all the other infants all over the world that weren't. Are those other infants all damned? And the Lutheran infants saved? Where did all this come from? Did it come from Scripture, or did it come from human tradition in church history? I'd say human tradition in church history. I'm not wanting to ignore church history. I took more church history courses in seminary than was even close to being required. I took every one I could get my hands on. I love church history. But, I, but you learn more about what not to do than what to do when you study it. Now... Isn't it possible, if there's any degree of objectivity left in Christian theology, and we're not just postmodern emergence, isn't it possible to go back to the scriptures and objectively understand what they say? That's what we're trying to do. Now, I realize that when you do so, you, you run afoul with church history in some cases, like what you're talking about, Luann. I don't think we're helping anybody by, by providing false assurance. I got an email, well, my email was still working just last week, from someone listening to our radio show where we're talking about infant baptism and said that you sit at the Lutheran funeral and you just know what's coming. So-and-so was baptized as an infant, therefore they're in heaven. I've heard that pronounced again and again and again, even in the case of someone who has showed no visible sign of having anything to do with God or ever serving God. I went to such a funeral because a friend of mine's sister was the one whose funeral they were having. They said it there. Now, if you're sitting in that congregation, aren't you assuming I can live like the devil my whole life? And if I was baptized as an infant, therefore I'm saved. Now, Luther wouldn't say that, but that's what people think. Rich, uh, right behind you there. Or in the same vein, how about the evangelical who says, well, I accepted Christ when I was five years old. There's no evidence of faith or any Christianity in his life. Isn't that the same thing? Now you're meddling. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we like to, to point fingers at the other guy. I think, as I said earlier, this applies to us as well. May God help us. May God help us to be bringing honor and glory to his holy name. Let me see what else I have here. I'll baptize into Christ. The analogy of the Lord's Supper. They're eating. Remember the water that came from the rock? The rock is Christ. Now, you can certainly have a lot of fun trying to figure out how the rock actually followed them when a rock by nature sits in the, where it is. But that's fine. Have at it. Or you can just be very simple-minded and say God provided them water out of the rock, and that's the point. And the rock was Christ, and the water was always there for them. How that worked doesn't cause me to lose any sleep. A lot of things cause me to lose sleep, but this is not one of them. 
I'm not the world's greatest sleeper. <laughs> but uh, I don't worry about that. The rock was Christ, and we'd have to all agree with that. How can we go and be baptized and go for the Lord's Supper and go for prayer and sit under the word of God and die in unbelief? It happens. Where does faith come from? As I said earlier, the word of Christ. And that's what we're going to transition into after next week is the word of God as a means of grace. We realize that infants and young um, adolescents grow up in our households as well as they do those in other denominations or whatever. And we would all like our children to serve the Lord. And we're obligated by God to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord as godly parents. But there's no process, mechanistic or magical process, that guarantees the outcome. I want somebody to get upset that I said that. Wouldn't we like such a thing? There is no such thing. And if we teach the truth to our children and they decide to live for the devil, we've discharged our responsibilities, though we still pray for them. They have to answer to God. That's very liberating. So God is the rock. We have the Song of Moses, by the way. I would point you to Deuteronomy 32. The rock is Christ. So there's a typological character of Israel's existence. We learn from them. It says that right here in 1 Corinthians 10, not in this particular five verses, but these things happen to them for examples that we should not crave evil things. Isn't that what it says? They happen as a type. So despite the sacred privileges, similar in kind to yours and mine in Corinthians, including the presence of Christ himself to nourish them with spiritual drink, they fail to obtain the prize. They fell into idolatry. And they died one by one in the wilderness and did not make it to the promised land. Now I have here another quote uh, from Gordon Fee. Paul's understanding of the Old Testament as Christian scripture and of the church as the people of God in the New Age, not capitalized, meaning the Messianic Age. But this, his point in all of this must not be missed, says Fee. Just as God did not tolerate Israel's idolatry, so he will not tolerate the Corinthians. We deceive ourselves if we think he'll tolerate ours. Wow. In the fact that we don't teach justification and sanctification by works, but we teach justification and sanctification by grace through faith, some will inevitably accuse us of antinomianism, that is, being against the law. In other words, go live like the devil, that's fine, nobody cares. Well, let me say a couple things about that. The whole point of means of grace is to keep that from happening, all right? We don't want to live like the devil. We've done enough of that. We don't want it. We do not believe that some human lawgiver who stands in the place of Christ and Moses and the apostles and makes his own laws and rules is going to do anything but make us worse. Will not sanctify us. And we do believe that what God said in his word, as we studied it right here, this itself, we're studying sacred scripture, penetrates our hardened hearts and makes us long for holiness 
in Christ and for his return. The Lord's Supper does that, prayer does that, Scripture does that. The exhortations in Scripture, which this is, do that. We don't need somebody's legal code to make this better. In fact, it harms it. Okay, uh, whoever has the mic, bring it to Eric. Make sure the green light is on. Bob, the the very fact that we're under the means of grace, and like you're pointing out, it's used by God to keep us from sin because we remember what he's done. That shows the importance of not falling for people who try to falsely bind us and say, you know, are you really good enough for the Lord's Supper? And the faulty nature of that is, think about if you're worrying about, well, I'm so sinful, I'm really not good enough for the Lord's Supper. Now you're not placing yourself under the means by which God works upon you. So the irony is, is when we are sinning, that's when we need the means of grace all the more. Yeah. And so we remember what Christ has done. What happens in these pietistic churches is they will ban you. You're not good enough for the Lord's Supper. You're not good enough for baptism. We'll give you a test and we'll see how you, how you do. A guarded table based on human laws and rules that aren't in Scripture. Exactly. They say, well, you're not good enough. And they take away our means. And how do you become good enough? By listening to these human lawgivers beyond Scripture. And do whatever they say. And if you dare, I preached on this last Sunday, but you dare say, no, I don't believe that's really the law of God, they'll throw you right out of the church just as fast as people that had faith in the New Testament were thrown out of the synagogue. John 9 happens all over again. You're out. Why? Because they cannot resist or refute your biblical argument so they have to silence you and tell you to go away. And so that's an attack on Christian liberty. But it's not the open door to lawlessness. For one thing, if the means of grace are what God's provided for those who have been circumcised in heart by the Holy Spirit... I really don't think it's all that common for Christians who are filled with the Spirit to be wishing they could sin more. Why would we think, oh, I want to sin, sin, sin some more? Oh, if I could just do it. If that were true, I'd be more worried about my salvation. And when we get delivered from a sin, we rejoice that we're free. We don't want more sin. We don't want to disobey our Lord. It grieves us more all the time when we do. So where are these people boiling over in every kind of sin because they have means of grace where if they just had law as given by modern-day law givers, they'd be okay? No, they wouldn't be okay. The only thing they could do differently if they had that would be please the religious authorities. They wouldn't be any more Christ-like. Oh, washing, I forgot this. I have this. I've got three minutes here. Look at these two passages. Uh, the reason I went to this was Luther used this to prove infant baptism. It doesn't prove it, by the way. In Luther's thinking, anytime you see the word washing or water, it means baptism. And if it's baptism, it means infant baptism most of the time. Ephesians 5.26, talking about the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How does that happen? Well, I would say baptism is certainly part of the means of grace, but it's the word of God taught and believed that's cleansing us here. Because it says washing doesn't imply infant baptism. Uh, let me quote 1 Corinthians 6, 11. We've got a minute or two. Uh, and it talks about a list of, of sins. And then it says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. You know the great thing? When I was debating in some of my articles and books about these mechanisms they have in the evangelical church for dealing with the past, they bring in these psychologists and psychiatrists who teach an unbiblical doctrine that our past memories determine our present well-being. Then they hire a fleet of psychiatrists to try to fix the problem. 
And then you spend the rest of your Christian life sifting through the past with a comb, looking for the clues to why you're like you are. And I debated this on the radio, debated it in print and in my books. And I said this, of all people, Christians are new creatures and we don't have to spend our time contemplating the past. And such were some of you. We have new status. We don't have to. I don't believe for one second if I get angry while I drive my car and boil over inside anyhow, avoid doing anything worse than that, because some moron in the other car. Okay, I don't believe for one second that's true because my dad called me a dummy when I was a kid. He did. And when he did, I just loved him all the more. You big dummy. And I'd love it. Oh, my dad loves me. Now you can go looking for whatever, but see, we're, we're new creatures. One more verse, Titus. I did Ephesians 5.26, washing of water with the word, and then we got to close. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by washing of regeneration. Luther says, aha, there's infant baptism. What? What Bible's Luther reading? A guy that was so great in the scriptures and knew the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and was brilliant, and he can't see any better than that? I'd say he's blinded by tradition and church history and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is an allusion, by the way, to Ezekiel 36, and we'll close with this. Let me read Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. A tub of water won't give you a new heart, will it? But the Holy Spirit does. And I will, I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Here, I'm in full agreement with Luther. Luther said this, The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And as the Word of God is purely taught, The Holy Spirit comes to us, convicts us, empowers us, changes us, gives us new hearts and minds, and we think differently. And our minds are not sitting there concocting what sort of evil. Oh, I think I'll start a pyramid scheme and get everybody's money before I go to jail. And then when you get caught, oh, I'm a Christian. No, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not a new heart and a new mind. If you're really a Christian, you'll just invest in something and you might lose money, you might make money. So so goes. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a Christian attitude. Amen? Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is so true and so powerful. May our lives be changed by your mighty work of grace through your ordained means. In Jesus' name, amen.